Welcome to episode 163 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. And before I go on, I want to apologize again uh, for those of you who didn't see the last apology for episode 162, where the audio just sucked. Uh, um, we screwed up, and instead of uh, using our mics, we recorded the entire thing through that little pinhole mic on the uh, laptop. Uh, so that's why it's bad. Uh, if you really um, uh, were interested by the discussion and want to read a transcript so that you can figure out <laughs> what the hell we were talking about, uh, uh, go ahead and send us a note, uh, uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, and we'll send you out a transcript, which we've finally transcribed. Uh, but uh, hopefully this time we will be um, much better auto, uh, uh, recorded. Uh, so we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Um, the guest interview today was with Susan Monroe, who is uh, a partner in Steptoe's Beijing office, uh, breaking down several of the most recent Chinese legal developments in cyber. Uh, and uh, our news roundup will be presented by uh, Alan Cohn uh, from uh, uh, DHS and now in our Washington office. Uh, Maury Shank, uh, lawyer, technologist, uh, director, and our man in London. Uh, Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, who chairs the firm's class action practice. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We ought to get started. Um, so the, uh, the winner of the uh, French election is Emmanuel Macron. Uh, and uh, he managed to do that uh, over the... Uh, uh, Efforts of Vladimir Putin, who ran his Hillary Clinton playbook against Macron and failed. Uh, Alan, uh, uh, Maury, uh, I thought uh, this was really interesting because it uh, parts of it are not really repeatable outside of uh, um, Europe, uh, threatening people with prosecution if they talk about what was in the hacked emails that uh, uh, the Russians released uh, probably isn't going to fly in the United States, and I'm surprised it, uh, uh, it had real traction in France, probably would not have if the, the uh, documents had been released a, a week or two earlier. Um, but some of it, I, I thought, you know, there's a lot of speculation, some claims that uh, what the Macron campaign did was salt their files with fake documents so they could immediately show that uh, the Russians were releasing forgeries along with the leaked documents and so they could cast doubt on the veracity of the documents. Uh, Alan, you're, uh, you're making uh, – oh, all right, you're passing this one to Maury. Maury, you, you buy that? Um, well – uh, the details are hard to know. I, the things I thought were interesting were re initial reactions, and there was a lot. Uh, it was kept quiet, as you noted, in the run-up to the vote yesterday. Um, was that it was a fairly mundane set of documents, and it was fairly funny that the Trump supporters in the U.S. were heavily involved in trying to get it out there on the internet. And there were some fairly comical misreadings of the French in Twitter. So 
uh, Donald Trump's supporters that do speak better French now as a result of this, which is probably good news. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that struck me as, of course, that's what you would say if you were a Macron campaign. Oh, it's just Americans and crazy Americans, too, who are tweeting this. Uh, uh, focusing on that, I, I think probably isn't um, uh, particularly significant. Uh, uh, and, and claiming that 4chan, that there was a claim that 4chan is a, uh, a right-wing uh, movement. Uh, they're just griefers. Uh, they're, you know, the, everybody who trolls uh, is on Fortran, uh, whatever their politics are. Well, I agree with you. It's who was pushing this out there is not the most important thing. It does appear to be linked to APT28, which is the Russian government-sponsored group. And if the Russians ha do have a global pro program of disrupting elections, that is what is significant here. I guess my point is it's interesting what a good um, dissemination organization the Trump built for this sort of information or his supporters built, and it still seems to be there. Yeah, but maybe. I, I mean, I, you, the Russian involvement is the big news. They, I, there was a New York Times reporter, Nicole Perleroth, who pointed out that uh, – uh, large chunks of this stuff were automated, repeater, uh, probably bot uh, accounts set up just to find anything that talked about the Macron leaks and retweet it uh, endlessly. Uh, um, so this was probably, uh, in substantial part, uh, the uh, the Russian uh, information warfare uh, um, unit doing what it does. Uh, but you know, look there. Within 24 hours, the campaign, the Macron campaign, was pointing to specific forged documents and, and documents that made no sense, right? There was some, some parliamentarian in France was supposed to have ordered illegal drugs sent to his office in his own name, uh, and the uh, invoice was uh, uh, in the uh, documents. I, there's just no way that uh, anybody is dumb enough to do that, and therefore it's a, it's a fake document. And once you find a few, you kind of think, oh, well, I don't know whether I can trust any of this stuff. Well, you mean like um – like uh, child sex rings being run out of the basement of pizza joints yes. in, uh, in D.C. Uh, I think it was interesting also that both institutionally, maybe legally, but also institutionally, the French were able to resist the information warfare from a couple of from that exactly that point that that you made, which is they they have a if not law, at least standing practice that you black out news um 48 hours before the election for this exact purpose. It's kind of the anti-October surprise uh, uh, point. The Macron campaign was was much more savvy about that than, uh, than the Russian information warfare specialists in that they were able to, as you said, identify exactly the pieces, some pieces that discredited the leak, get that out right before the 48-hour moratorium kicked in, and then, and then the French out. media, you know, held to uh, the lid that 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 goes on reporting. It, on it's it. also the case that the French establishment is far more 
established than ours. Uh, and uh, in the face of a candidate that the establishment loathed, uh, our establishment uh, collapsed and uh, the French establishment coalesced uh, from Macron. Uh, uh, so I'm not sure that the uh, the papers were going to cover this anyway. Uh, it certainly helped that they got to see a dry run of uh, of the information warfare uh, in action a couple of months before. So, but I, I nonetheless, I think that this. Stuart, your point about um, you know if they seeded it with fake documents and were able to point to those that uh, called out on the thing, that's just smart information practice, and we'll see more of those. I'm. It calls to mind what we're doing in a private equity deal I'm working on now, where each buyer gets a slightly different set of uh, financial data. And so if there's a leak, we know who leaked it. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. They, in, the, in, in the third uh, decimal place uh, in the 14th column, <laughs> there's a there's a difference. Huh? Yeah. And I think we'll start seeing people do clever stuff like that when they think they're going to be hacked. Okay, there's a future for honey docks uh, uh, instead of honey pots. Uh, uh, I think you're right. Uh, um, in fact, uh, uh, I'm on the advisory board of a company that does some of that stuff. So uh, uh, hopefully uh, uh, I'll retire on uh, the, my very modest uh, um, uh, equity interest. All right, uh, moving on, uh, the future of litigation uh, is nuts, right, uh, Jennifer? Yeah, well, depending. In this particular case, so it seems. So um, interesting lawsuit filed earlier this month uh, by a Mexican uh a company that uh, that makes that provides distributes nuts uh, sold product to a U.S. customer uh, and the Mexican-based uh, supplier. Its email server was hacked, and someone sent an email to the customer saying, "Send the money to my personal bank account. Send a payment to my personal bank account." And um, they did, and in fact, the customer continued to send to a variety of new email, uh, bank addresses and in- new instructions um, without ever recognizing that perhaps this sort of uh, instability of banking relationships was a sign of uh, some sort of problem. So this they lawsuit... They probably just thought that the Mexican uh, official was <laughs> scamming some money off out of his company. I guess. But that, so in any event, when all said and done, uh, they misdirected about a million and a half dollars worth of payments. Uh, the Mexican company has now filed suit in the United States saying that basically this U.S. customer annoy, uh, ignored red flags that it should have uh, recognized and prevented it from sending all this so money this is really in the wrong interesting direction. Because neither of these guys is going to look good, is my guess. I mean, obviously, the Mexicans allowed their system to be hacked and didn't notice that they weren't getting paid for stuff that they were shipping. Um, but it is quite possible that there were red flags, like, uh, you know, uh, sending the stuff to the Ukraine instead of to Mexico, that uh, uh, might have led somebody to send an email, ask a question. Right. So, you know, the Mexican company claims that they did take some steps to alert the the U.S. customer to the fact that they weren't getting paid. But, you know, that will all get sorted out. But the point you make is a good one, which is, you know, as as sort of things progress, sure, you could get misdirected money, you could get misdirected deliveries, all these sorts of things. And, you know, there may need to be um, some sort of compliance uh steps taken to make sure that that's not happening. Really interesting. It's one thing to say when I get an unusual payment request, maybe I was hacked. Now I have to worry that my 
counterparty was hacked. Okay, well, that sounds like the future of the plaintiff's bar in this nutty case. Uh, uh, all right, we have a transparency report from the intelligence community on uh, uh, searches and uh, of uh, uh, data collected uh, uh, for one purpose and then researched for other purposes. This has been a theme from the left uh, trying to turn 702 collection into something that gets yet more scrutiny, uh, uh, claiming that uh, somehow um, searches are being performed on data that was collected for one purpose, focusing on a foreigner outside the U.S., uh, uh, but then later names are, of Americans are used to search the data. Um, turns out that uh, the FBI has done that uh, with respect to criminal cases, uh, and this uh, transparency report reveals that uh, they did it exactly once last year. Um, not, you know, if, if, if somebody is telling you there's a great scandal and we need to uh, uh, rewrite the law to make it harder to do, uh, uh, to, to secure, uh, uh, do security investigations, and then it turns out the number of cases they have in mind is one. It's kind of hard to uh, uh, get very excited about uh, changing the law. Uh, I'm actually, I think uh, on this one, it's the right that probably has a little bit more grist for the mill in the uh, uh, transparency report because they uh, revealed um, the number of times Americans Identities were disclosed and masked and then unmasked uh, in uh, uh, 2016 uh, in reports issued by NSA. And, and that's interesting. There's, there were 4,702 reports that uh, had the names of U.S. persons or that, that talked about U.S. persons. And about 3,000 of them uh, – the uh, uh, the name was masked as uh, U.S. person one, and in about 1,200 of them, these things don't add up because there's more than one U.S. person in some of these reports. But in about 1,200 of them, uh, the data the the name was actually disclosed right in the report. So the uh, the analysts said, well, they're going to need to know who this is, uh, um, and so they actually disclosed the name. And then a kind of sur- the surprising number is that. Almost 2,000, almost 2,000 cases, somebody asked to have the identity of a masked U.S. person uh, unmasked, uh, which, of course, is what the uh, flap over Susan Rice is uh, all about, the suggestion that maybe the unmasking of these identities was aimed at collecting intelligence on what was happening in the Trump campaign or the Trump transition or something of the sort. Uh, and this uh, this doesn't prove anything of that sort, and there are plenty of reasons why you would unmask an identity. Uh, um, uh, but uh, uh, the, the fact that really almost 3,000 uh, uh, reports out of 4,000 had U.S. person identities disclosed means there's probably time for a closer look at, at masking procedures. All right. We still don't have an executive order, do we, as of, as of um, uh, Monday morning, uh, uh, but we have a new leak. Uh, yes. Alan, did, is the new leak any different from the last leak? Well, yes. Um, you know, sacrificed in the, uh, in the audio uh, 
disaster of last week was a segment on the last leak leaked uh, just as EO, well. So right? perfect. So, um, <laughs> uh, but you're seeing like little minor refinements from from version to version. Yeah, you know, the the thing that folks point out from uh, from this exor- executive order to the last set of leaked ones are. Uh, kind of removing the core communications infrastructure from the obligations uh, on right. this, this is presumably the telcos lobbying to say don't don't single us out as trying to solve the DDoS problem. Let everybody solve it. Yes, um, removing the term internet freedom from the uh, international goals of the of the U.S. Well, and um, that's certainly consistent with our embrace of people like Duterte and Erdogan uh, and the like. Uh, human rights is not going to be a big element in this administration. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, and some revisions on training the workforce uh, of the future. So, but I, I do think, you know, that. At the end of the day here, uh, and I was, you know, guilty of this myself many times, um, but there may be a little bit of too much of polishing of the strategy here. Kind of, it's kind of time to finish the writing and the thinking and get on with the doing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, there are all kinds of jokes about, uh, uh, the inability of software architects to actually, you know, release. Uh, and, uh, uh, this is starting to be embarrassing for the administration. It's just, uh, the, the changes in this are quite modest, and it turns out that um, it's starting to discredit the idea of having an interagency process because it's the interagency process and kind of uh, the fact that people keep coming back to this and saying, "Ah, oh, I got a little tweak now." Uh, and besides, you know, we got a whole seven days of news cycle that we ought to fold into this uh, that is holding it up. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always the, the, you can have the opposite instinct of trying to shove something out the door, but I think given the, where this document is, um, and given that there are a number of really good provisions in here about important things to do, protecting the most critical infrastructure, those section, you know, those, uh, uh, infrastructure identified under section nine of yep. the, of the executive order, or, um, uh, some of the, the, the review, you know, the reviews by the Secretary of Homeland Security and the Director of OMB of each federal department and agency's risk mitigations and risk acceptance decisions and how to remediate things and, and, and match budget to strategy. I mean, these are important things, uh, to get going. There are important and good provisions in the executive order and it's time to get on with the doing of them. Yeah, I, in fact, it, it, it's been more than 90 days since they uh, started on this, which means they are – the White House has – is giving the people who are writing all these elaborate reports less time to produce all the reports than the White House has taken to produce the order telling them to produce the reports. Yes, and inevitably, although the original leaked uh, – uh, Versions or the versions that were circulated internally gave everybody a, a heads up that this would be expected. Um, it's unlikely that anybody went to try to get a head start on there. Oh no, I'm sure they're not. They're not uh, uh, working on it because they're still fighting over whether there should be a comma between co- in coordination with X, comma and Y, or whether it should be in coordination with X and Y because the comma might imply a reduction in status. Yeah, that's I'm sure what the, most of the interagency consultation about these days. Uh, okay, Home Depot settled its, I think, last case over its breach. Uh, Jen, what does it mean? Uh, well, it's interesting because the case that they resolved was actually a case that they had won at the trial court level oh, and it was pending I, appeal. Why, why are we not plaintiff's lawyers? What a sweet life. <laughs> well, it's not that sweet, and I'll okay. get to that in a second. I mean, all things are relative. So so basically, uh, the case that was uh, resolved was... Um, 
a uh, shareholder derivative suit that had basically been based on the premise that Home Depot's board had not instituted adequate internal controls to prevent uh, the breach. And, you know, that's a... That's what they always say. Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, if you've advised boards, you know that cyber is very, you know, and data breach is a very hot issue. Directors very nervous about this area. So in any event, um, the uh, the case, they were hit with a series of these cases after their 2014 data breach. Uh, the cases were um, dismissed, but on a sort of technical ground that often uh, arises in the shareholder derivative context, which is that they are supposed to make a demand on the board to take action. Our derivative suit is really an action on behalf of the corporation, right, against itself, the shareholders of the corporation. So if nobody asked the board to do anything, it's kind of hard to say the board had an obligation to those people to do something. Correct. Well, so that they could have taken on this action on behalf of the the company. But but basically, um, you can get around that requirement if you can show that demand to the board is futile because there are not enough... uh, uh, disinterested directors to be able to initiate some sort of action against the, uh, the company. So, um, so they won based on this demand futility argument below. Uh, but they uh, settled while the case was on appeal, and uh, the settlement is pretty innocuous in terms of um, it, it's basically just a variety of um, we're reforms. We're going to do good things in the future? Right. Reform, you know, we're going to increase our controls, we're going to fix the X, Y, and Z, and we're going to pay more than a million dollars in your attorney's fees. I, I, I think I know which part of that the attorneys right. not cared about. Exactly. <laughs> now, you know, so so there's some money, you know, there's some chum in the water, and the question is whether this will spur additional suits going forward. Um, you know, whether this is enough to really entice uh, no, because you're bound to lose lawyer. some of them. So you're, you end up uh, not getting back all of the effort you put in if you're a plaintiff's firm. So this is not a, a great deal, but it's a it's a pretty good sale. Well, and it's it's kind of a first. So we'll see, you know, if if it spawns other people forward. All right. Um, okay. Quick uh, uh, stuff for the last few minutes. Um, there's another. There actually is a an executive order that came out. Uh, probably looks looks as though it was written about. Uh, 20 minutes before it was released, uh, uh, certainly didn't spend uh, all that time in uh, purgatory that the uh, poor cyber order has spent. Uh, this is the one creating the American Technology Council, which is now meant to be kind of an imitation of the Economic Council and the National Security Council and the late and lamented Homeland Security Council. Uh, I it, and all it does, as far as I can see, is create the technology council and say who's on it. Is that pretty much it? Pretty much, and charter it with looking at IT modernization across the federal government. Uh, um, you know, a, a, a welcome look, uh, not like it hasn't been tried before, but uh, uh, it's always a good idea to look for ways to improve our uh, acquisition of IT because government acquisition of IT and the IT itself is in – Terrible parlous straight. Yeah, and it may be more significant for the for the identification of folks like the head of the U.S. Digital Service and the Federal Chief Information Officer and the uh, Tech Transformation Service. Um, yeah, and actually, basically I, just I the, the, saying they have continued viability in this yes. in the administration. Well, so. the U.S. Digital Service probably was on the bubble for a while, and, and it, it's uh, I I, uh, I lobbied for it, uh, and it looks as though it has not just survived, but 
more or less prospered, which, yeah, is, which is good news. It also sets up a little uh, principals and deputies uh, council system under the Scowcroft model, so more interagency coordination. Oh, yes, because that, that's what everybody needs is more meetings down at the White House. Um, okay. Um, the U.K. has floated, and there's a kind of grousing in the uh, lefty liberal community about it, uh, a draft inter- set of interception obligations, which they've been showing to the people who will be subject to the obligations, but not to the rest of the world, although it's now been leaked. Uh, Maury, anything surprising in this uh, set of obligations? Not really. The Parliament passed a new Investigatory Powers Act uh, that took effect late last year, but this set of regulations needs to be adopted to bring in force a number of the powers, and this is the power to give notices to uh, build certain interception capabilities into the network, like we in the U.S. under Kalea. And uh, the powers under the new legislation are pretty similar to what they were under the former legislation, RIPA, which is being phased out. There was some noise about uh, operators being required to take away um, – uh, decrypt, uh, but but it's only if they um, implement the encryption themselves. So there's nothing particularly new here. Okay, uh, that's what I thought too. And yes, uh, uh, just you just say encryption or uh, nod in the direction, and and, and uh, the balloon goes up. But there's uh, no surprises here, and it's basically uh, what. Kalia requires. Uh, um, okay, um, in Germany, we're going to we're going to uh, box the compass here. Uh, uh, Germany's intelligence service is um, whining that the Russians are going to hack them next. That they got Angela Merkel in their uh, sights, uh, and uh, poor Germany doesn't have legal authority to. Uh, to hack back and destroy machines around the world. Uh, uh, I thought these were the, the, the pacifists in NATO. Yes, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, that's why they've got that legislation. Yeah, and what they're complaining about is worries about being hacked by this same Russian group, APT28, which clearly should win Hacking Group of the Year this year. Yes. Um, the, the, com- the complaints that they're saying remind me of what happened in the wake of the Snowden disclosures. <laughs> where rather than being a gas uh, intelligence services around the world wanted more power. And, you know, we're, we're used to seeing intelligence services want more power. Here they've got a pretty good reason for it. I know you like hackbacks, Stuart. I do, although I, you know, I, I, I was surprised at how they immediately went to, we want to be able to melt people's hard drives. Uh, uh, that didn't strike me as um, the first thing you would do uh, with the authority that the Germans are seeking. Well, as you pointed out on the last encryption item, that may be the press uh, focusing on the most exciting bit of the rhetoric. I suspect they're looking for a more nuanced set of tools in reality. Yeah, okay. Um, well, it will be interesting to see whether they get it, but uh, again, the German uh, establishment is a little stronger than ours, uh, and uh, they're determined to keep AFD in its place, and uh, uh, I would not be surprised if uh, Angela Merkel gives the, uh, uh, the BND the authority it needs to ensure that she isn't blindsided by Vladimir Putin in another um, uh, disclosure of mass uh, emails, but uh, Angela, uh, keep in mind the uh, honey docs strategy. It worked for Macron, uh, and I'm sure BND can show you how to do it. Um, the budget, 
uh, I took a look at it. Uh, DHS did all right on cyber, didn't they? DHS did pretty well. DHS did pretty well across the board, yes. uh, restoring a lot of the things that were being proposed to cut, um, some plus-ups, and, and um, uh, NPPD, the National Protection Programs Directorate that holds a lot of the uh, cybersecurity capabilities, got a uh, about a uh, little less than $200 million uptick over uh, last year's uh, uh, last year's budget, which was good, and that will help uh, with the implementation of things like Einstein and continuous diagnostics and mitigation and the operations of the of the NCIC, the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. It is worth remembering, though, uh, that the budget uh, went up to about uh, 1.8 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. The total budget of the department is, you know, around 50 billion dollars. Yep. So we're still talking about four percent or so yeah. of the of the de- of the department. Well, compared so to EPA, they're feeling pretty good. <laughs> I think that's right. But if we're looking at things like um, uh, like greater in, in investment uh, in accelerating and finishing out Einstein deployment and really accelerating oh, yeah. CDM and things like that, that we're still a little shy of what it would take to do some of those things. I'm sure that if you told J.P. Morgan's CISO that his budget increase was going to be 4% this year, he'd jump out of the uh, top of the building. Uh, uh, so, yes, uh, uh, it's it's relative uh, only compared to EPA are they doing really well. Um, and uh, they're probably doing well for uh, because of a couple of stories uh, that come next because they are attracting uh, all of the enemies that uh, I'm sure President Trump uh, uh, delights in. They have backpedaled on their proposal to, uh, on, on their policy, which has been around since, uh, frankly, since I was there. I was uh, say. Of, of letting... Uh, of, uh, yeah, exactly. Of, of uh, applying the Privacy Act to foreign nationals. They're not obliged to do it, they, but uh, in 2007 they said uh, uh, we're going to give you, we can't give you the right to sue, but we can give you all the other rights that the Privacy Act uh, provides. They've now taken that all back uh, uh, and uh, um, probably will give it grudgingly again to whoever's left in the EU uh, uh, under the, uh, uh, the uh, Judicial Redress Act, but otherwise not, is my guess. Right. Well, the headline on it is that it's gone away from everybody. But as you point out, I mean, the Judicial Redress Act still exists and presumably needs to be complied with. So, right. um, so that, you know, really what it, it does is it takes away the ability to um, access and seek amendment of your records. If you think the government is pertain- uh, maintaining inaccurate records about you, you're going to have to submit a FOIA request just like everybody else. And then it also uh, removes some restrictions on sharing that information with state and local law enforcement. Well, it's it's very Trumpian to say, you know, uh, we gave that away for nothing. Uh, why don't we make people come here and bargain for it? Uh, you know, the Europeans did, so maybe we'll get something from the Japanese if they care, or the Canadians. Uh, um, so uh, that's that's how I read it. Uh, the ABA is is mad at. Uh, DHS for doing border searches, uh, which they've been doing since 1789, uh, uh, but lawyers just noticed. Uh, and so the ABA has sent a, 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 a note to DHS saying, uh, and, and that's pretty much uh, word for word. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an interesting way of coming at the, the what's referred to as the border search exception. Um, which is less of an exception and more, if you read the, the Supreme Court's kind of jurisprudence on this, more just 
a different way that um, uh, that provisions on searches and seizures uh, work in the border environment and not because of any constitutional provision and not because of any law, but because of the of the nature of a sovereign's right as a sovereign right. um, to control what comes in borders. So uh, but this is an interesting uh, uh, way to come at the at it as a as a concern about um, uh, attorney client privilege right. and other aspects of that. Um, as you see other pressure based on kind of the scrutiny that border policies are getting. There, there, are, there are rules. I mean, it, it's not like DHS says, oh, you're a lawyer. We want to find out about your clients. Give us your phone. Uh, they actually aren't uh, allowed to do that. There are a set of rules. But uh, the ABA, of course, would like more rules because they're the ABA. Uh, and they're a lobby uh, for lawyers. Uh, so, uh, But uh, no real sense that that uh, is developing a lot of legs, but we'll see. Uh, and, um, my favorite story of the, uh, uh, of the week, uh, from an unlikely source, The Guardian, uh, where I am sort of, uh, uh, aligned with them playing the world's smallest violin because it turns out that if you are a billionaire and you have a 15 story yacht, uh, some guy in a dinghy can pull up an, uh, alongside you uh, as long as he has a dinghy and a Wi-Fi reader uh, and start extracting uh, data from your electronic systems. Uh, and uh, there's uh, uh, some suggestion that uh, in addition to the usual $100,000 in fraudulent trans- uh, wire transfers, uh, uh, people have begun downloading TV and uh, uh, other uh, pictures from the networks of the uh, yachts, um, which can include lots of salacious material that you can use to blackmail the billionaires. That's right. It's all I, like I, I, I keep saying technology is designed for divorce lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully yes. nobody on these super yachts is using the technologies we've been discussing over the last few weeks, the uh, the internet connected devices. Yes. I well, apparently, uh, you know, I, I actually got a call from uh, some very smart guys who were saying uh, who said, you know, we're thinking about doing a startup in which we will focus on the security needs of really rich people. This is obviously a Silicon Valley uh um uh, group because they think really rich people are found in, you know, uh, three bedroom bungalows, uh, in the flats of, uh, 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 the, uh, of Mountain View, which is probably true. Uh, and so they saw a big market. Uh, my guess is their biggest market is within 10 miles of them, but. There's a market there now, it turns out. Uh, okay, last thing for everybody who's listening. If you think that getting a, uh, a, a text message on your phone from your bank, giving you the two-factor authentication that you need to, uh, to log in and move money around, is providing security, you have to think again. We now have seen a uh, systematic use of um, the system. System signal, signal system seven, easy for you to say, um, a, which is eminently hackable, and now people are starting to hack it uh, remotely using actual targeting particular phone numbers, extracting the SMS num- uh, uh, messages, and therefore they can go online, they can log in as you, uh, and say, and, and the bank will send the second factor to you at your usual phone number. Only it goes to the hackers who use it to authenticate themselves. Two factors, they get the money. 
this is kind of scary, um, a, and it's going to put renewed pressure on the security of SS7, which is, you know, uh, been subject to a lot of contempt in the last 10 years for its lack of security anyway, and it's going to get uh, uh, more so. Um, all right. Uh, anything else? Nope. Okay. Uh, then let's go on to our interview with Susan Monroe about Chinese cybersecurity law. Okay. Steptoe is having its firm-wide retreat in Washington uh, uh, this weekend, and uh, that means that Susan Monroe is in town from our Beijing office. Uh, Susan is a partner there and uh, uh, an expert in all things uh, uh, Chinese, so I'm taking advantage of the fact that she's here to ask her about some pretty recent developments in Chinese uh, cybersecurity law, so welcome, Susan. Thank you, Stuart. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, so... Broadly speaking, I think everybody has an idea that China has been tightening up its uh, uh, standards for uh, basically trying to, to develop a completely independent autarkic uh, IT sector uh, uh, and encouraging their companies to um, adopt cybersecurity that will lock out a lot of uh, uh, U.S. and maybe European technologies, uh, uh, and that they've sort of been doing it in fits and starts over the last 10 years uh, with a lot of regulations and some of the regulations it's been hard to know whether they meant it and how much they meant. Uh, And my sense is it's becoming a little clearer and there have been two or three new measures just in the last uh, month or so that uh, give us a little more clarity on where Chinese cybersecurity policy data localization, data protection policy is going. So can you tell us what's new in that field inside China? Sure. Um, of course, the uh, the most important piece of legislation that China has passed recently in relation to uh, cyberspace is the so-called cybersecurity law, which was passed uh, in November 2016 and uh, is imminently going to go into effect on June the 1st. Okay, so that, that's so, the deadline. We, it hasn't been in effect now. People have been worrying, what does right. it mean? What are we supposed to do? Uh, there were a lot of uh, troubling uh, uh, pieces of language in that bill. Uh, do we know more what it means? Um, it certainly it's promulgated now. Um, uh, I'm not sure that it's crystal clear uh, in terms of its meaning. And, and typically in China, uh, laws um, contain uh, statements of principle, are more broadly drafted uh, after they've been promulgated, and sometimes even before, uh, subsidiary legislation is promulgated, mm-hmm. uh, explaining, implementing, uh, so on and so forth. And, and uh, uh, there are multiple levels of sub- subsidiary legislation. Um, most recently, for the uh, to assist with the implementation of the cybersecurity law, um, in fact, in April, uh, the cyber uh, cyberspace administration of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, known by the acronym CAC, C-A-C, right. um, released draft measures for security review of export of personal information and important data, also known as the draft security review measures. 
Um, these were uh, are still in draft form. It will take um, a few months before they are promulgated, but they um, provide more clarity uh, in relation to, among other things, um, how China will treat data privacy. Uh, data privacy is also addressed in the cybersecurity law, but not with such specificity. And they also have provisions on localization, if I remember right. Yes, that's in 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 the cybersecurity law and in the uh, in the draft uh, security review measures. Um, be- before we move on to say a little bit more about that in the context, um, I just want to mention one other draft piece of legislation which was promulgated in April which is um, China's first dra- encryption law, the draft encryption law, mm-hmm. um, promulgated by the uh, State uh, Encryption Management Bureau, SEMB, right. S-E-M-B. Um, and that clarifies uh, a lot of uh, matters in relation to encryption. Uh, historically, um, China's um, data protection, data security environment has been um, quite disparate. It's been uh, comprised of uh, multiple uh, regulations issued by um, various regulators um, uh, addressing the situation piecemeal. What the cybersecurity law does is it provides a, an umbrella pretty much with its sister legislation, uh, including the encryption law, we must also remember that the state secrets law is also part of this um, regime. Uh, together, we have a, um, uh, a framework, if you like, for the entire um, uh, governance, management, supervision. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, one way of thinking about this is that this uh, cybersecurity bill is kind of the keystone arch uh, yes, in the arch. Yes, that, very much uh, so. Uh, it tells you... And if you're in the private sector, what the Chinese government expects you to do uh, yes, with respect yeah. to cybersecurity. And, and, and I want to dig into that because uh, um, so a lot of it sounds familiar to uh, uh, Americans because a lot of it is um, similar to requirements or at least encouragement that the U.S. government has given to the private sector. So uh, and, and some of it is uh, sort of gobsmackingly different. Um, so uh, can you kind of run through what somebody, oh, first, who's subject to the uh, to the cybersecurity requirements? That is an excellent question and, and um, something that's troubling a lot of people. Um, the cybersecurity law um, re- uses the term critical infrastructure. So you have to be critical infrastructure to be covered. Uh, a critical infrastructure operator. Um which applies to parts of the uh, requirements in the law, uh, probably not to the data uh, privacy parts. Right. Um, the security review measures... And when, um, when, when do you need a security review measure? The security review measures support uh, the subsidiary uh, legislation supporting the cybersecurity law, and they uh, reference uh, network operators. Ah. Um, now, neither of these terms is defined. Uh, and just, and to, just to, so I'm, I'm clear on this, essentially the network security measures or the security review is something that critical infrastructure or network operators have to do before they buy IT equipment. Is that right? 
Well, that's part of it. They have to go through a national security review if you're a critical infrastructure right. operator. If you're just um, running a small consultancy in, in China, assuming you're not in a highly regulated area, you don't have to go through this type right. of security review. But if, for example, you are a major IT, uh, uh, foreign-invested IT company in China, um, there's a high likelihood that you're going to have to um, uh, go through national security review. For essentially review everything that you're, you're using or selling uh, to critical infrastructure. Um, in short, yes. <laughs> okay. So it's a big deal. Uh, it's a I very big deal. I assume it is basically aimed at saying we want to weed out any equipment we don't trust or that has known weaknesses. Um Yes, the tone of the cybersecurity law is um, the tone of making the environment safe. Right. Making the environment safe for Chinese people, making the environment safe for businesses operating in China. Um, so yes, we want to weed out um, products that we don't like that that are not good enough. So I most I think most people would be forgiven if they assumed that uh, the Security review was going to um, exclude foreign products if there was an acceptable domestic Chinese substitute for the uh, the, the foreign product uh, on the theory that uh, Chinese products are trustworthy and foreign products are not. Certainly there would be a very high hurdle for a foreign product to clear uh, to convince the Chinese authorities that, that the product was acceptable, and the preference would certainly be to buy Chinese. Um, one of the issues that's come up, particularly in the finance sector with the banks, is the requirement potentially to have to disclose core um, core software. The, the right, coding. you have to provide source code yes, in order to meet yeah. the security review, which very few companies are prepared to yeah. do for fear they'll never see the source code, or that they yeah. will see the source code again in somebody else's product. Right. Although those um, those requirements were suspended and have not yet been re-implemented. So although they, you know, re-implementation would be in line with the tone of uh, the new regime. So critical infrastructure uh, covers who? Hmm. Um, it's impossible to say with any degree of certainty at the moment. Right. Um, they did give us a list, didn't they? Uh, there have been various lists, actually. If you look at different iterations of the law, then there's been um, uh, different uh, scoping of, of this area. Um, the type of fields which are in the final um, version of the law include uh, things like public communications, uh, information services, the energy sector, uh, telecommunications, water conservation, the financial sector, all public services, all e-government matters. Um, but additionally, they include um, infrastructures that could endanger national security or give rise to risk to national security, uh, could um, threaten people's livelihoods, and this uh, ubiquitous term, the public interest. So it could be anything. Yes. Now, I have to say, they probably learned that from us because our list of critical infrastructure uh, for cybersecurity or for homeland security purposes is every bit as broad because no one wanted to leave something off. Uh, right. We, the, the U.S. government has come up with a, a list of the people that are 
truly critical, and that's a much smaller list, and it's not public. Um, but uh, uh, you can see at work an enthusiasm for regulating here that uh, uh, means practically everybody has to be afraid that they're covered by this, and they aren't going to get a lot of comfort that they're not. Yes. Now, having said that, um, it's going to be a very strange environment if everybody is covered. Um, because the amount of regulatory activity will be truly extraordinary. Yes. Um, now, the, the uh, security review measures provide for a self-assessment regime, um, uh, which with reporting to regulators. Um, but this this may be um, if, a way if, out. You, yeah. You, if the you scope is really broad. You decide you're not critical. You mail you you know put a post a stamp on it and mail it in <laughs> uh, and and wait to hear hopefully five years from now. Well, it won't be a postage stamp. It'll be done online. Ah. Um, uh, I, I, it won't be a determination that you're not a critical infrastructure. Right. It will be a, a determination of compliance. And remember that for data privacy, no matter what, you're going to get caught, as it were, as a network operator, which is uh, a broad. We know is a broader definition. So, than so the, first you have all the security review and the favorite, uh, the favoritism toward uh, domestic uh, IT uh, infrastructure that applies to critical infrastructure. And then beyond that, the people that are caught up by the localization and the data protection and, and really the national security uh, uh, provisions uh, are network operators, which is anybody who operates a network. Does that mean like if I have a server, I'm covered? Most likely you are. If, you, if, if you're sitting in China, you have a server in your office, you're operating your own network. Just your own domestic, your own corporate network will make you a network operator and therefore you're Potentially, yes. Yeah. We don't know yet because there's no definition, but there's, there's nothing to say that that would not be the case. So everybody's got a network, uh, has to worry that they are subject to the restrictions of uh, data protection. And mm. by this, they mean more than just personal data protection. They mean protection of anything that is considered uh, sensitive data. Absolutely. To China. Yeah. So you've, you've really got sort of th- three categories of data protection, I suppose. One is uh, personal data, personal information. Um, the second is the sort of big ticket national security, uh, national security items. And the third is a, a catch all for the regulators. Anything that they determine. think is in, in the public interest? Is yeah, that the, uh, precisely. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, and this is in substantial part a restriction on exporting the data. And what else do you, as if you're just running a corporate network in China, what other provisions are likely to apply. Obviously, the encryption regulation applies, although they've let foreign companies use foreign encryption up to now, and I think they're still doing that. Mm, it um, just has to be licensed. Yes, yeah, you have to go in and get the license. Uh, uh, is there, beyond data localization, are there other uniquely Chinese requirements for network operators? Um, in relation to personal information? Yeah. And also the uh, information that uh, might be considered um, uh, national security sensitive from the Chinese point of view. Yes, I mean, there's um, for personal information, um, you've got a, a regime that's actually very similar to the European regime. Right. A system of consents, a system of explanations. Um, a system Although I'm of guessing that if, 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 you, if you only have to have as much respect for human rights as the Chinese government has uh, in order to export the data, that, that covers a lot of countries. 
<laughs> yes, um, there's something interesting there, of course, which is that um, if we're if we're talking about um, very dangerous exports of data outside China, um, we're talking maybe about state security, state secrets. Um, that potentially is a capital offense. Well, that would that would slow you down, I, <laughs> uh, I'm sure, and uh, you know it does kind of. Uh, Put in perspective, uh, the uh, 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 European uh, GDPR's uh, uh, proposal to uh, assess four uh, percent of your global revenue. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Sergey Brin would rather give that up than uh, uh, sub- be subject to the uh, death penalty. Yeah, no doubt. Um, uh, of course, we assume that China will use this very, very sparingly. <laughs> no doubt. Well, they only have to do it once, I'm sure, <laughs> if they want to get people's attention. Okay, uh, so let's take a step back and, and say, um, what are the what are the overall trends? What is China doing here? And my sense is um, they've been going in this direction for a while, and if anything, they've put the pedal down uh, uh, with this new stuff. They're they're getting more enthusiastic about uh, uh, regulating in this area, uh, and we can't count any more on that uh, sort of. Uh, uh, burn reaction where they do something and people say, no, that's crazy, and they pull it back. No, I mean, I think uh, China is asserting its rights, um, uh, rights that it views as sovereign rights mm-hmm. um, to uh, its sp- cyberspace. Um, I think it's fair to say that China believes that the, the Internet, um, like the real world, has boundaries. Um and that it can protect its sovereign rights within those boundaries, uh, and it can also restrict the free, free flow of information across its boundaries. Well, you know, they 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 were they were told they couldn't possibly control the flow of information in, uh, and uh, they said, "We'll see about that." And by and large, they've done a pretty good job of keeping people in China from getting information freely and easily that uh, the government doesn't want them to get from uh, from outside of China. And the Great Firewall isn't perfect, but it uh, doesn't have to be perfect to control the debate inside China. So they, they've, they've probably learned that with all the Western experts who tell them how, what they can't do on the Internet are wrong. <laughs> um, I wouldn't disagree at all that the Great Firewall is extremely effective. Um, of course, China's This is not a sort of sudden knee-jerk reaction um, on the part of China. It's been uh, steadily and carefully working uh, in direction of uh, building a very robust uh, cybersecurity regime for many years. Um, uh, There are various uh, milestones. One is the 12th uh, five-year plan, which was adopted in 2011, where China decided that it stated clearly that it would develop its laws and re, uh, regulations on cybersecurity and information security and strengthen robustly strengthen management of the internet. Um, and at this stage, we saw for the first time China talking about a secure and controllable hardware and software. Um, moving on five years in the most recent thirteen. Wait, wait, wait. 
we shouldn't skip over 2013 <laughs> when Edward Snowden, I, I think if, if there's any impact he had, uh, uh, apart from his, you know, modest impact on, uh, U.S. law, it's in galvanizing, um, Chinese determination to pursue that, uh, five-year plan much more aggressively. Um, it's hard to assess the impact of Snowden on, on China's, um, uh, on China's initiatives in this area. It would have gone in that direction no matter what. It, it just, uh, confirmed, uh, to Chinese authorities, I'm sure, that it was doing absolutely the right thing. And, uh, uh, there was an easy, um, reference point there. So, so let me th- th- ask what what this means, not just for U.S. companies, but uh, for U.S. and Western European policy toward China. If China is absolutely hell-bent on now making their digital boundaries, their digital borders effective, uh, not just about um, what data gets into their citizens, but uh, what technology is running their uh, IT sector. Um, that means they're going to be engaged in massive protectionism disguised or uh, justified as national security uh, uh, measures. Uh, it will be hard for uh, Western governments to say there is no security threat. Uh, we think there's a security threat from Russian and Chinese technology coming into the United States. Uh, uh, are we inevitably bound to either um, break up the market into China and her allies and the rest of the world uh, or uh, have uh, uh, or surrender to basically letting the Chinese protect their market and then come to ours as well? Uh, where, where is this going to take us? That's a really interesting question right now, yeah. um, uh, particularly with regard to the U.S., um, it's quite clear that which what direction we could build a huge wall. wall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Yes, you can have your own cyber cyber wall. Um, I think that it, it's still not clear yet um, how the U.S. is going to respond to China in in particularly in the cybersecurity area. China's approach is very clear. I yes, think. The, the, and and by and large, they have you know I, I'm sure they would be happy to be able to export all their pro- the products that they've insisted on, uh, people build for their own security. Uh, uh, but they might also be perfectly content to say, fine, we'll just have a Chinese market, uh, we'll be Chinese only, and if you won't buy our products, we're not buying yours. Um, I don't think you're going to see a situation of Fortress China without China going outbound. You've, you've seen tremendous outbound initiatives, not necessarily to the U.S. Right. Um, the, right. They've, 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 they've blanketed uh, um, Africa in all of this technology. You have the new initiative of the Silk Road mm-hmm. um, going across Central Asia, around the south of India, as far as New Zealand, it appears. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, you have potential ready markets for an alternative Chinese technology. China's very keen on developing its own standards right. um, uh, in this area and developing eventually its own products. So if U.S. companies insist on saying, as they 
currently do. When you take our technology, you take our unbreakable end-to-end encryption that defeats your law enforcement uh, as part of the deal. Sorry, that's the only deal we're offering. Uh, the Chinese can come in and say, oh, no, all of our technology can be broken by the government. What the hell? Why do you think we designed it? Uh, and uh, uh, we'll sell it to you, and you won't have to worry about these uh, Silicon Valley libertarians anymore. Well, I think it's quite possible that we'll see a a competing environment uh, that is very commercial, established um, eventually by China, and uh, uh, China will have ready markets that okay. are developed um, f- from for multiple, uh, many many reasons. Some geopolitical, some uh, just uh, 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 because um, smaller countries need China's patronage um, and uh, China does better job than the US at maybe so a uh, last question um, you um, you've got a paper in front of you uh, it looks like a uh, long report on developments in uh, uh, Chinese uh, cybersecurity law um, is it done uh, is it ready for people to download or uh, if will, not when will it come out yeah this is um, goes by the really uh, very exciting name of an overview of the data protection regime of the PRC Woo-hoo, you know how to title <laughs> those things <laughs> uh, yeah we're working on that one um, it'll be ready um, on the website in approximately uh, four days I would say we need to 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 just clean it up a little bit. Um, it's very interesting. It's very comprehensive. We're trying to make it readable. Okay, and so it'll be on the Steptoe uh, uh, website. Uh, probably we can link to it from the Steptoe Cyber Law blog and in the notes to the show. Okay, Susan Monroe, this has been terrific. A great overview of uh, Chinese law and policy. So thank you, and uh, now let's go out and enjoy the retreat. Absolutely. All right, thanks to Susan Monroe. Thanks to Alan Cohn, Maury Shank, Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff. Uh, it's been terrific. Uh, this has been episode 163 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, if you've got a guest interview to suggest, and we're getting a lot of very good uh, suggestions, I want to say, people I uh, might not have thought of on my own and uh, that I'm looking forward to talking to. So uh, lots of uh, coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mugs, complete with logo, uh, going out to people who have suggested uh, interview suggest- uh, uh, subjects. Uh, so send those ideas to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, which is also where you go to get um, the um, uh, transcript of um, the ill-fated episode 162, which I think is going to become a classic. It'll, we'll call it the lost episode, right? Well, it's like the old lost episode from the RSA uh, uh, conference two years ago yeah. with Phil Wright and Sherman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and, and I, you know, well, we should start a rumor that if you play it backwards it says <laughs> Stuart is dead Stuart is dead okay anyway um, uh, so send those suggestions in next week we're going to have Tim Maurer who's from the uh, Carnegie Endowment uh, talking about the only international norm project that I actually think is a good idea um, and then uh, uh, we'll also be hearing from Bill Kroll uh, director of SafeNet 
partner at Alsup Louie, uh, former deputy director of NSA, uh, uh, a, uh, an investment uh, or a venture capitalist who will be talking about uh, his particular area, which is cybersecurity. So that should be a, a, an interesting and different take on uh, cybersecurity. So we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thank you.